Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It is Thursday mid-morning-ish, so I probably am recording before some of the last questions came in, but there seems to be a bunch, so let's jump in and see what we got. First up, Oliver Clare said they recently found an Xbox 360 in their local electronics recycling center, which is odd because cosmetically it's almost in mint condition and fully boxed. They do want to sell it, but haven't sold secondhand hardware before and want to do it ethically. So are there any advice or tips on what tests that you could put it through in order to be able to advertise it as fully working? So that's a good question, and that kind of brings up a debate, but let me answer your question first, and that if it were me personally and I were in a situation like that, the first thing I would do is take compressed air and blow out all of the vent holes just to make sure any dust that had built up is filtered out of there, and then I would take a, a damp cloth. Like One of the things I usually do is after I blow out all of the dust and get everything as, as shaken out as possible, I'll wash my hands and then dry them with a paper towel and use that damp paper towel to then wipe down the console and then especially wipe down any of the cords and stuff because I think a lot of people's power cords get dusty just sitting behind wherever they are and those kind of get a little gross too. So, you know, unless it's very dirty, I wouldn't go crazy, but a wipe down seems fine enough. Then I would power it on, play a game on it, and by play a game, I don't mean like finish a 60-hour game. I mean just like play a round of something just to make sure that the disk drive works, that you get video, you get audio, all of the basics are there. And then look and listen. Is the drive spinning up four or five times and before it reads it? And, you know, is there a clanking inside? Is there a rattling? Something, you know, is there something noticeably wrong with it? And then at that point, if it passes all those tests, I would just be honest and say, uh, I'm selling this console. I tested it to the best of my ability. Everything seems like it's working fine. You know, let me know if there's any tests you need me to run or anything like that. But generally speaking, I don't think there is any other test to run. So that's basically it. Now, the debate that this brings up is what if that is a console that's never been opened before? Would you then say, all right, I'm going to crack it open. I'm going to do an even better job cleaning the dust out. I'm going to check for any damage on the inside and go from there. Or would you leave it a console that's never been opened before? And I think for me personally, for, for stuff that's over 20 years old, uh, you know, especially things that are pre-sixth generation, so maybe not GameCube, but definitely N64, I would open up just because I want to make sure there's no leaking capacitors. Uh, you know, I've found some incredibly gross things in consoles before, so I would pop it open knowing that while, yes, somebody out there would have probably preferred a console that's never been opened, there isn't a seal, I'm not breaking any seals or anything like that, and there's more benefit to doing so than not. But for something like the 360, if you don't hear anything rattling around, if there's no reason to open it up, I don't know that I ever would. I'm all ears, as always, though. If somebody has a suggestion or wants to point out something I'm missing, I'm always listening. Um, but it's really going to be up to you at that point. 
for my line for me personally is if I did all the things I just said, plug it in, use it, spray it out with air, wipe it down and everything seemed fine, I would leave it alone. But if I sprayed it with air, I wiped it down and I heard something heard something rattling inside or if the drive was like clicking or something like that, I would then pop it open and see if I could determine what the issue was and if it needed any further maintenance on it. So that's for me that's my line is if there's something wrong and by wrong it could just be you know a piece of plastic flew in and it's bouncing around and it won't ever actually hurt anything but if i feel like something might be wrong i would open it up and if i don't then i wouldn't uh, the only exception would be things where you know there's going to be an issue like original xbox with the leaking capacitor and stuff like that so um i guess that's my thoughts on that one but anybody please chime in if uh if i've missed anything because you know, it's so often the responses I get from these remind me of stuff that I forgot about or never heard about. So please let me know if I'm missing anything, but I think that should be it. The Remora just wanted to clarify a question from last week where they talked about wanting a cartridge shell for an MVS game that makes it look like an AES game for the purpose of having a consoleized MVS at home. So the MVS arcade boards were Neo Geo arcade boards that used a different cartridge than the AES home console. So even though it's the same game, it's a different cartridge, and the MVS ones were very bland with just one boring label on the back because they were designed to go inside arcade machines where no one would ever see them. You just need to know what game it is with the label on the back. So I totally understand the need and the desire to make that look flashier, especially if you've gone through the trouble of consoleizing an MVS to make it look like an AES for home use. And by the way, I get a lot of questions about why you would want to do that. The main reason is cost of games because MVS games are generally a lot cheaper than AES games and also for people that might have an arcade setup. So you have a stand-up, you know, big red arcade cabinet, but you also have a super gun that you want to use in a different environment. Now you could use the same games on both. Or you have a friend with an arcade machine and you have a super gun, whatever it might be. Um, but if you're in that situation where you took the time to make something really nice, like the Open MVS, I understand why you would want to make it look like the home version of the cartridge, and I don't think there's a safety issue because I don't think they'll fit in each other's cartridge slots. So it's not like somebody could take an MVS game in an AES shell and accidentally put it in an AES. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's not a concern. So I do understand uh, why somebody might want that. I just don't know if it exists. So last week I left a link to transparent replacement shells for MVS games that the Remora said is probably good enough for their situation. And I'm sure they'd look fine. I've uh, seen them. I think they look awesome, but I thought the question was worth discussing because I do see a situation where people would want the AES style case, but for their MVS game. So does anybody know if anything like that exists? Uh, if so, please post in the comments. And if not, you know, if you're looking to make stuff like this, I'm not sure if that's going to be a big seller. So maybe that's a 3D printed project or something. But either way, it was a question that I felt was worth uh, taking the time to talk about a little bit. Tony had some suggestions for somebody that was looking to connect a Wi-Fi network to something that only has an Ethernet port. I guess like a PlayStation 2 that only has the Ethernet port in back or the Xbox or something like that. And they said, look at Wi-Fi extenders from companies like Netgear or TP-Link. Most have an Ethernet port for connecting a wired device to the Wi-Fi. Or if you're looking to upgrade your home Wi-Fi in the future, most mesh-based solutions have wired ports at each node. Um, so that both of those are good pieces of advice. Um, 
The first one, just getting a wireless extender. I've had really bad luck with those, but if you're only using it from the point of view of I'm using this extender to connect, you know, my main router to this place or to this console that is wired and not near where that main router is, that should be fine. I personally have had bad luck when it's like I have a router in one corner of my house and the extender in the other, and I have a device connecting to that network transferring between the two. If that's the situation you're in, I think a mesh network like the Netgear Orbi is a better solution, which is one of the things that Tony mentioned. And I don't, I haven't really heard anybody have issues with those. I haven't used one or I haven't lived in a place with one myself yet. I've, I've done business installs where all those seem to work fine, but I don't, I don't have one in my house yet at least, but that should be fine. And you do get the benefit of the network port at the back of those. So that would be a better idea, but that's pretty expensive. So if you wanted to do that, I mean, spend your money however you would like, but it's in my opinion that if you wanted to redo your wireless network in your house, and oh, by the way, I also want to connect wired devices to the wireless network, that would be a great solution. You could even put a switch into one of those and connect as many consoles as you want to that. Obviously, I wouldn't turn them all on at the same time, but just saying you could wire everything in, but I would only go through the mesh network solution. If you planned on wiring your entire house or redoing the wireless network in your entire house. Anyway, the other thing too, if there are any of my fellow it nerds are out there, I'm kind of in a weird situation where my house is all wired, but I want better wireless coverage for everything around it, especially outside for when the nicer weather comes so I could bring my laptop outside and still connect at full speed. So I wanted the opposite. I wanted something like the Netgear Orbi mesh network, but instead of using those network ports in the back to connect wired devices, I wanted to plug those all into my network and have different nodes. So would I need to go to a pro solution like that? Would I need to go to the... um, uh, ubiquity or, uh, uh, man, uh, I'm trying to remember all the names of the stuff I used to install, but do I need a pro solution like that? That's designed to be wired, or can I take something like an Orbi mesh network and s- change a setting so that they're all pulling the internet connection from ethernet and the Wi-Fi is only just for coverage, not for sending back and forth or with a mesh network. Does that even really matter? The last time I really dug into those was like uh, Z wave and, and for home control and stuff like that. So not only is that, dating me as a person. It's also nerd years dating me right there. But if anybody knows anything about those and has some real experience with them, that's the the person I would love to respond to this. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but there's a lot of very well-intended people that say, oh yeah, my cousin has one of those and it works fine, but they don't have real hands-on experience. So people that do, especially us nerds, always have a thought or two on something after installing it and using it. Um, But yeah, sorry, Tony, to take your answer and turn it into a question for my own personal use, but who knows, maybe my fellow nerds would be interested in that as well. A couple of things from Jason Guffey. First, in the discussion about taking OEM Xbox 360 cables and modding them for other things, Jason wanted to try making a SCART cable with them since they have all of the connectors you would need. YPBPR, left, right, and also composite. So there's your sync right there. Um, I think that would be a great do-it-yourself project. And, you know, Jason made the joke, you know, they're not looking to compete with cable manufacturers. They're just doing this for a fun project. And I totally get that. I just would also think about what it is that you're looking to accomplish because you might be able to do exactly that. But now 
build yourself a pretty cool tool. So for something like any device, like an Extron Crosspoint or one of those Otaku switches that also has the RCA inputs, you could take exactly what you just described, uh, take the Xbox 360 end and wire that into a SCART connector. And now you essentially have yourself a SCART to RCA adapter. It's not changing the signal. It's still RGBS left, right ground, but now you have them individually broken out, which could be helpful in many different scenarios. Um, now you asked, uh, is there any cheap SCART cable you can get where you could just use the leads? Um, I would check AliExpress for something like that. And I think even Console 5 has cables listed as like cheapo cable. You know, this is not shielded, you know, for, for exactly what it is that you're trying to accomplish. But depending on where you're located and the time frame for this, this is a great use for AliExpress parts because, uh, you know, ordering five and then using the cheapest shipping might cost you $6 and it might arrive in three months, but whatever. So that's certainly a good use for it. But yeah, I would definitely look into this to to see what exactly you could use this for and if it would benefit you. And especially if you wanted to start with a junky knockoff cable, that way, you know, you don't ruin a, a perfectly good Xbox 360 component cable. But I, I totally see a million different uses for that. And I think it would be a great project. The only other thing to note is where to wire sync because SCART has input and output. So it's either pin 19 or 20. Please double check that. I'm going off of memory here. Um, so that's just something to think about. But yeah, I think that would be a great idea for do-it-yourselfers. Also, Jason said that the switch that I talked about recently, that uh, HDMI 1 to 2 with audio breakout, both sellers are out of stock, which stinks. I kind of knew this was going to happen because of the part shortage. I'll try to find more sellers of that. Uh, if you find ones that look the same, maybe match it to the insides. I'm pretty sure at the bottom of that post, I put pictures of the top and bottom. So if the chips match, you should be good. Um, but the question Jason had was that uh, the other switch I recommended a few months ago, just the one to two splitter, I believe that's the one that could also downgrade uh, output two from 4K to 1080p if you needed to. Um, do those carry audio as well? And the answer is yes. All HDMI switches will pass audio through. Uh, if, if one doesn't, it's broken or, or there's a very specific listed reason for it. But all of these switches should take the signal completely unchanged and output it to two different ports. I still am not really sure why sometimes there's compatibility issues with splitters and stuff like that. I think it probably has to do with the EDID and the HDCP handshake, but I've yet to see a splitter that adds lag, compresses colors, or, or really messes with the audio signal at all. The only thing is, you know, uh, anything that has a buffer, so anything with a processing chip built in, but none of the cheap stuff I recommend is that at all. It's just a splitter. So yes, you will pass through the audio in that. Um, Jason has one more question, but I'm going to answer that separately. So Jason also mentioned the discussion from the roundup this week about how I miss weird looking PC cases and how I like taking stuff and putting it into other stuff. And Jason reminded everybody that those transparent shells from Retro Gamer Store might be a really cool option. Now, normally I don't like taking original console shells and hacking them up to do other things because there's a finite amount of them laying around. You know, everybody knows I like no cut mods for this exact reason, but the bottom line is your consoles are yours to do with whatever it is that you would like to do with them. And no one has a say in that. So if you want to mod those cool, but getting an aftermarket shell is the perfect way to do it. 
And I would love to see people come up with kits where you could take that Retro Game Restore shell and maybe 3D printed brackets that allow you to mount a mister inside of it or a Raspberry Pi kit or, or, you know, a hard drive and a Pi to make a Retro NAS out of a Super Nintendo case or something like that. And I would really love to see the community come out with crazy and weird and interesting ideas for this. And I think the Retro Gamer Store cases, while they're not cheap, for somebody that really wanted a cool and unique and different way to mount whatever it is that they were doing, I think people could put together companion kits for those that would be awesome. So imagine, you know, USB ports where the controller ports go. Uh, so you'd have to make a little PCB and, you know, an extension cable, but that would work. 3D printed mounts that would screw into the mount holes of the original console, but then allow you to mount, uh, you know, anything in its place. Um, ports in the back, same thing, so you could break those out. Come up with a really cool way to use the cartridge port in some of these. Um, I just, I, you know, maybe maybe if it's a NAS device, there, you know, the hard drive plugs straight into the top or something. I, I don't know. I'm just getting weird, and I love people's creations and people's creativity coming out of stuff like this. So this is a call to arms, my fellow nerds. Anybody who feels like doing this stuff, um, I would love to see any projects that you have. And I, anybody that comes up with something cool, at the very least, if I see it in front of me, I will definitely retweet you just because I think this is the perfect storm for somebody that wants something weird. You don't have to hack up or utilize any original consoles, broken or otherwise. And you get something really cool, and it's totally unique and different. And now I'm going to start thinking about how I could kind of apply that to any of the weirdness that I need. The stuff that I'm specifically thinking of, I think I don't think I could fit everything I need in a console case, except for something like a Mister. I think that would be really cool, or a Pi, or something like that. But, um, I, but I'm really looking forward to see what people come up with with this stuff. So good suggestion, and I can't wait to see if anybody does anything like that. Adam Adam Ant is looking to create a new folder on their retro NAS for a platform that's not currently supported. And the short answer is just create a folder and dump your ROMs and don't worry. But there are a few maintenance related things that I think you'd probably want to familiarize yourself with in order to get new features, tweaks and other stuff like that. But I just wanted to start by skipping to the end just to let you know there's no crazy procedure to worry about. But the first thing that I would recommend is just make sure RetroNAS is updated to the latest version. Now, I'm pretty sure if you need to update, you could just do so while files are being transferred, but I'm a paranoid nerd. It's my opinion that if your files are being transferred down the line from one computer to your RetroNAS, wait till that finishes to update it. But to update, all you have to do is launch it. And depending what version you're on, the easiest way to do it might be going back into cockpit, clicking on terminal, and just hitting the up arrow, which should be the last command you ran, which would most likely be launching RetroNAS. But after you're on the version as of about today, in order to launch it again, open up a terminal and just type RetroNAS. That's it. It's pretty cool. Just hit type that and hit enter. When you launch it, you'll see it go through the update process, um, and that will add new features that's been added, new tweaks, um, things like the easier way to launch it. But one of the things that also happens is folder sorting and new folders being created. Now, I want to very hard stress that nothing is destructive. So if you have a bunch of ROMs and the folder structure got moved around, everything's fine. You didn't lose any ROMs. You didn't lose any time copying things over. Um, it's just been moved to a better organizational 
you know, a better way to organize it with more sim links for different platforms. And when you run it, there might have been a folder created for the platform that you're looking for. Um, if you created a folder manually, so let's say today you create Philips CDI and you dump all your games in there and a couple months from now, that folder is part of a new update. You might end up with two folders, you know, maybe CDI is the one created by RetroNAS and you created Philips CDI. And if that's the case, just dump all the stuff from yours into the auto created one and delete yours. Also, I'm pretty sure manually created folders don't get auto sorted, so you wouldn't have to worry about any of that. But all of this is local stuff and none of it requires recopying to the drive. You're just moving files around, which is seconds. So, you know, that's why I just wanted to start out by saying there's all good news here. I didn't want you to get halfway through the section and go, oh crap, what did I get myself into? Nothing. It's all good. Um, also, you know, for all the rest of that stuff, the new features, the new things that are being added, it's all non-destructive. And it, so you don't have to worry about any of your ROMs being on there. And even if for whatever crazy reason you decided to move your retro NAS to a different setup and or a different device, whatever's on that hard drive is still going to be the same wherever you move it. Or let's just say for whatever reason, you just don't want to use RetroNAS anymore. Now you just have a Linux formatted drive with all of your stuff on it that could be read anywhere. So I just wanted to make sure that I stressed that to anybody who's unfamiliar with the platform. All of this stuff is non-destructive. The ROM drive or the, the storage drive, if you will, is just organized, never deleted. So worst comes to worst, just create a folder and you'd have to manually deal with it. Um, but hopefully most platforms will be in there because I think for stuff like uh, for things that aren't currently supported on Mr., let's say, might be on software emulation. So I think more and more folders for more platforms are being auto-created. So I would personally, if I needed to add a new platform, start by updating RetroNAS, accessing it from a browser or a, or a Explorer window or something, and just seeing what folders are there. Because that way, if you do have a platform that's supported, it means all of the sim links will be created for anything else that you install. So hopefully... Hopefully that made sense, but at the very least, I started out with the whole just create a folder in case that's all you want to do. Green Devil had a couple of questions about Nintendo 64 power supplies, and while I'm not an expert in those, I do have a bunch of experience, so I think I might be able to point you in the right direction. But basically, they had a fully loaded N64 that stopped powering on, so they swapped to a different power supply, and now it powers on. So, cool. Troubleshooting already done, there was a power supply issue. So they popped open the other one and ended up replacing the capacitors just to see if that would help. And when they put it back in, it still didn't power on and they realized that the fuse was blown. So there are self-healing fuses inside those N64 power supplies. There's been a few times where my N64 wouldn't power on. I still have no idea why, by the way. And I just kind of left it unplugged overnight, plugged it back in, and it had been working fine ever since. And I never really knew why that happened or what would cause that, but that's kind of why a self-healing fuse is good because, um, you know, it, it just, you don't have to worry about that stuff. So why would the fuse blow on yours? It's possible a capacitor was backwards. It's possible one of the caps that was in there already had just a tiny bit of a charge still and you jumped them together which blew the fuse out so that means that maybe if you'd waited a little bit the fuse would have gone back and fixed itself maybe it was totally dead and it was time to get another one i'm not really sure but uh you said you'd ordered another fuse as well and you wanted to go in and double check the caps and everything else 
So I would kind of just wait till the fuses come in and do a full visual inspection. Double, triple, and quadruple check that there are no shorts, that the board isn't cracked, um, that the capacitors are all the right polarity, and just kind of do a full visual inspection of everything. And if it still doesn't work, it could be one of the other power components on there as well. So um, I'm definitely interested to seeing what you find with this. It could just be that you needed new caps and a new fuse on this one. Uh, but also I'm interested in anybody else's experience. Is this a known thing? Is this something that happens? Is there another part that's known to go bad on the N64 PSUs? They're generally pretty solid. So I'm, I'm kind of interested both in why it blew and what could be done to prevent that in the future. But so far, I mean, you've done all of the, uh, all of the good troubleshooting steps. And let's just hope to see that whatever happens in the future... Um, you know, fixes it permanently. Eric Hurley is looking for a budget-friendly capture card for use with original consoles via the OSSC or RetroTINK 5X, as well as the Mister. They are not looking for reference quality captures. They just want to stream their games with their buddies on different platforms, and they'll be playing on a CRT and outputting to the capture card also. Uh, so I'm going to take the scenario of Mr. first, because that's going to be the easiest. So you have Mr.'s analog output going to your CRT. You have Mr.'s HDMI output going to your capture card. So my recommendation would be the cheapest capture card you could find on Amazon. Um, I, I'm not being silly, even though I'm kind of laughing when I say that. I'm being honest in that those $18 Camlink ripoff capture cards are fine. They're not good. But for what you just described, it will accomplish exactly what you need. It'll be, and it would be a stepping stone, right? So if you say, no, this is perfect. I get to hang out with my buddies. I get to play. Uh, we laugh. That's great. Mission accomplished. Then you're out 20 bucks. Or if you say, you know what? I love this, but I want to represent the games a little better because we all grew up with this and people are wondering why there's frame drops and stuff and you start to get obsessive like I am, then you could upgrade to a better capture card. But now you have a spare, which is always a good thing, especially when you only have to drop 20 bucks on it to begin with. Um, you could kind of go from there and, and see which other ones you would like to use. The one downside of the cheaper one is I would recommend running it at 480p or 720p. And I, I think it says it supports 1080p, but it really doesn't. Um, so you could then try to get another one of those cheaper ones, like the, the blue box from a couple years ago. But I think those have gone up in price to like 70 or 80. And it, that's the price point where it's, you know, would you then just save a few dollars more and get a good capture card that you never have to worry about? And that's really going to be up to you. That's why I always say, let's start with the cheapest possible and, and see what you really think about uh, how it works and is the resolution okay. In the um, in the scenario of Mr., actually in all those scenarios, you just set the resolution lower because you said you're going to be playing on a CRT, so not a big deal. The only other thing I wanted to mention is with the OSSC or RetroTINK 5X, as I'm sure you already know, you're going to want to split the signal before it gets to those if you're playing on a CRT. So G-Comp switch, G-SCART switch are the easiest ways to do this because they're eight in and two out and it's safe to use both simultaneously. So if that's the situation you're in, same exact answer in that just set your OSSC to, or, or RetroTINK 5X to the lower resolutions, plug it in the cheap capture card and mission accomplished. Um, if you don't have a way to split those, you're going to have to figure out something. So maybe it's you get uh, you get 
one of those cables like uh for example with the playstation you could have a scart cable with the composite video pigtail coming out of it so that you could play with light gun games well if you get sync on luma and the composite uh breakout that means you could connect that rgb cable to your ossc take the composite and stick it to the crt and nothing's being split you're just using two simultaneous independent outputs so i you know i could probably talk for the rest of the day about different ways to split signals i just wanted to to bring that up uh, in case anybody listening didn't know but yeah my strong suggestion is always the cheapest possible capture card you could find and then see what it does for you see what you think about it and kind of go from there and for most people who just want to hang out and play games with friends the 20 dollars capture card absolutely does its job it's not good but it does its job. So hopefully that'll point you in the right direction. I'm not going to leave a link because those run out of stock immediately and they're all generic. So just search on a major retailer retailer that would allow for returns in case something goes wrong and just get the cheapest capture card you could find. Christopher Deo was looking for that live stream I did with those two 20-inch VGA monitors and couldn't find it on YouTube and Twitch. So Christopher was looking for where to find past live streams. That one I think is gone, and I'll explain why, because I obviously got this one wrong. But whenever I do a live stream that I think people are going to be interested in, and not everybody always is, but if I do feel like it's something that would be of interest to people, I either stream on multiple platforms um, and make sure it's archived on YouTube, or I save a local copy as I'm streaming so that if people ask, I could re-upload that to YouTube at a future date, even if I up, uh, upload it unlisted or something and just put it somewhere else for algorithm reasons, whatever. Um, I try to do that. But in the case of that 20-inch VGA monitor stream, I was sick, I needed to get some work done, and I figured, why not hang out with friends while I do that? And it turned out to be so much cooler than I thought. And even though it was the longest, most boring live stream I've done, people seemed really interested because people wanted to know the same answers that I wanted to know while I was testing these. So it was just kind of a cool thing to pour yourself a beer, a cup of coffee, water, whatever, and just sit back and, you know, virtually be there with me testing those. And it turned out to be a lot of fun. And, you know, we confirmed some stuff and it was pretty neat. And I didn't, think anybody would ever care about that. So uh, I obviously get that wrong a lot because I've done a few streams where I was like, oh, everybody's going to be so fired up. And like three people showed up and I've done other streams like that where I was, I, I think I even said in the, you know, my, my Twitter post or yeah, my Twitter post about it, like this is going to be boring. Don't watch it. And a bunch of people were like, no, this is exactly the type of nerding we're looking for. So yeah, I got that wrong. I think that's gone. I don't, I don't think it's up anywhere. And Twitch only saves those for like two weeks, I believe. Um, so if anybody is a Twitch expert, can I set something to, to permanently keep old streams so they don't disappear? Or is that really just something I would have to upload on YouTube? Uh, I'm still kind of learning the whole live stream thing because I, you know, it, it just, it, it's one of those things where if you don't do it consistently, at least weekly, things are always evolving and it's kind of hard to keep up with it. So yeah, sorry about that one. That turned out to be a really fun and awesome live stream. And I think I was finally able to really demonstrate some of those situations to people as well. But yeah, screwed that one up. Sorry. Quantum Guitar is also having issues with an N64 power supply. And one of the issues seems pretty weird. Uh, so basically, they've isolated the problem to the PSU itself because whatever N64 they plug it into the problem stays with that, whereas if they use a different power supply, all the N64s seem to work fine. There's wavy lines on the screen, there's a white 
full screen that slowly fades into the intended picture. So there's a bunch of, of symptoms that are very power supply-esque, except one of the ones is the weird part. Um, if you use the bad power supply on one N64, when you switch to a, the better power supply or the working one, it still requires multiple power cycles to resolve the wavy lines on the screen issue. So that is a very strange clue. And immediately I would be distrustful of that power supply, but I haven't really seen too many persistent issues like that. So it could be causing a lot of other problems. So my opinion, what I would personally do with that one is replace the capacitors, replace the fuse, just in case. Maybe the fuse is broken and it should be tripping and it's not. And so you want a, a better fuse on there just to make sure and try it one more time. And if you still, not only do you get wavy lines, but if they persist with a better PSU for a few power cycles after, I would throw it directly in the garbage. Um, I hate to tell people to waste money. I hate wasting stuff. You know, I have boxes of stuff that I kept just because I don't want to waste stuff that I know has some use to it. But now you're talking about damage, not, and the damage is more important to me than waste. Because at the end of the day, throwing out a power supply that'll cost 20, 30 bucks to replace sucks but it sucks a lot less than blowing out like a N64 digital modded N64, right? So uh, yeah, I'd be very careful with that power supply. And if anybody has heard of that issue before, please chime in on that one because that's a strange one, a persistent power supply issue after a new one's been swapped out. And in fact, to be honest, if you replace the caps and the fuse and the old broken power supply is now working fine, I might do the same on the other ones because I'm, I'm just wondering why that power issue would persist through that. Could be also be wiring in the house as well, but yeah, I don't know. I would, I would start with basic refurbishing and kind of go from there. Shorejour recently picked up a CRT TV that could support 480p, but it doesn't have component video inputs and they were looking to connect their original Xbox to it. So there is a bunch of potential issues with this and the first place that I would start looking is the spec sheet and the inputs. What other inputs does it have other than RGB SCAR on the back? Um, does it have a VGA input? You know, you said there's no component, but does it have anything else on there that you could potentially use? Is it one of those TVs that actually had an HDMI input in it? Uh, I believe you mentioned it was a B&O, if I'm remembering correctly. I could have gotten that wrong, but, you know, there there were some HD CRTs. I, I own one, and I've, I've owned a few in the past that actually had an HDMI input. So if there's anything else that's not SCART, I would start with that just to see what happens. Um, but if all you have to work with is a SCART port, and obviously like composite and S-Video, those aren't going to work. But if all you have to work with is SCART, then, you know, you say the TV specs seem to imply that it supports 480p, but is that via RGBS, the standard way RGB gets passed over? Or is it through sync on green, RGSB? Uh, unfortunately, and for anybody that's unaware, the original Xbox uh, by default, stock unmodded only supports 480i over a SCART connector, no other resolutions. So you couldn't just plug it in, set it to 480p and test it out. You could, if yours is soft modded, you could force sync on green and see if that works. Um, and if you already have a SCART cable and if your console's already soft modded, that's free. It's just going to take a little bit of time. If not, you could pick up the comp to RGB and try 480p via RGBS uh, and see if that works. But this would be the first consumer device that I have heard of or that I remember that supports 480p over SCART that way. So 
uh, whatever you end up testing, please uh, follow up and let me know because I'm very curious how this goes. But you're just going to have to decide the different troubleshooting steps you want to take. Is there any other input you could possibly use to adapt the signal to? And if not, um, try RGB S via 480p. The comp to RGB transcoder is the perfect way to do that. Or try um, sync on green over SCART via the soft mod. But please let me know what you find because that's that's going to be an interesting one. Alexander Alvarado had a couple questions regarding cricks, but I wanted to start by saying they're all well-intended, good-natured questions, zero politics. Uh, I just, I didn't want people to think this was going to turn into a strange conversation about stuff that I have no business talking about, and it's not. It's, uh, I'm going to stick to what I usually do, nerd stuff and the human connection in things, because that's what's really important to me. First, have I talked to cricks? I have not. I haven't talked to him in months. Um, I emailed him a while back and never heard back, but I, I certainly didn't take offense. He's a very busy person. Uh, but unfortunately, no, I have not talked to him at all. Um, and I also hope he and all of my friends in Ukraine are doing okay. Uh, you know, I just, the people are always what matter to me, nothing else. And I just hope everybody can stay as safe as they possibly can when crazy shit happens. Um, Alexander purchased an EverDrive this morning, hoping to help out a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know where you ordered that from, but I did see on Twitter that the EverDrive store based in Ukraine is temporarily shutting down because of all of this. So if you ordered from there, it probably was a help, but you might not see it for a while, which stinks, but that's obviously nobody's fault. Um, do I expect EverDrives to become scarce or difficult to get now? So yeah, but because of the global part shortage, I think that the the lack of FPGAs was always going to hurt any device that's made that has FPGAs in them. So unless Cricks stockpiled thousands of these in a warehouse somewhere, he would have gone through the same exact problems everybody else would have to try to find them to make these. So I think every device that has an FPGA in it is going to be scarce in 2022. And hopefully when they come back in stock, all of this stuff would pick up. Um, I'm I'm not really sure how everything else is going to affect that or how it could going forward and anything would just be a random guess. So I, I think um, I, I think it's more fair to just talk about the FPGA side because that we do know and it's a bad answer. There, there are none anywhere. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is a crazy time, crazy thing to think about and I just hope all my friends are okay and I hope things can normalize as soon as possible, but I guess we'll all have to just kind of wait and see. But yeah, my, my best wishes to Cricks and his team, and I hope everybody's okay. There was a question this week about a pre-order gone wrong that I tried really hard to answer. I, I spent like an hour doing many takes, and I could never get it right. I always just ended up sounding like an asshole. So I didn't want to skip the question because I never do, but I think it's best to just not mention anyone's name at all and treat this as a very general answer for anybody who's worried about pre-orders or anything like that. And my only advice that I could give, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about a global company selling millions of things all across the world, or if you're talking about one single dev hand making and hand shipping one item, the general advice sticks. And then just look into the people behind wherever the pre-order is. 
And the people really are the key because there's been many times on a positive note where a new company, a new game, a new thing is formed. And it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm comfortable shelling out 100, 200 bucks for a pre-order. I've never heard of that company or that thing before. And then you look into it and you're like, oh, that's this person from there and that person. Oh, yeah, they do pre-order stuff all the time. That's totally safe. And, you know, obviously, if it if it's going through a store that has lots of experience handling pre-orders, Sure, you're going to probably have delays. There's probably going to be you know bumps in the road, but it's safe because you've researched the people behind it. And on the flip side, there's certainly a lot of things where, especially people in the industry or in similar industries, could see and go, "Yeah, it's not going to work," you know, or "That's not true," or "That's probably not a good idea," and you know. Unfortunately, we live in a time where clickbait headlines and crazy thumbnails with hot take ideas are what's driving a lot of people's opinions. And, um, you know, it just it is what it is. I can't fix that. I can't do anything about it. But I can politely remind you that for a lot of these things, uh, a lot of the pre-order situations that went really bad were things that were totally avoidable. Some were not. Some turned out to not be anybody's fault at all, and it was just a really awful thing. Sometimes it turned out to absolutely be the developer's fault, 100%, and they did or did not take ownership for it, and it sucks. But either way, I'm never going to stop talking about stuff that's pre-orders because not only is it a good way to get stuff funded, I don't want to have that negative connotation towards those things. Just because one or two people screwed up a pre-order doesn't mean that I should apply that to any future pre-orders even if it's somebody's first time doing something. But once again, just try to get your info from the right people and from people that have experience in this because it's it's very easy to, to look at a situation and go, that person is a complete newcomer. I've never seen or heard of them before, but everything that they have listed shows that they're probably going to do a great job with this pre-order and it's safe. Whereas on the flip side, there's been a few times where there's been a large global company that took pre-orders and a bunch of us were like, this is never going to work the way they say it is. Don't waste your money. And of course, you know, that wasn't the hot clickbait take. So nobody listened. And uh, what a shock. Turns out that the nerds were right. So try to get your info from a good spot. Try to uh, keep a level head and not get emotional because I know it's really easy to to pick teams or to really want something so you get behind it and just pick and choose where you want to place your money. And for me personally, I just want to say once again, I am never letting any of the past negative, very few negative pre-order experiences stop me from putting my trust in new people. I just apply those principles and a little bit harder these days. And I learned from some of my mistakes, but it, I'm, I'm not going to shame somebody who's never done anything wrong for something that a completely unrelated person did before, which some people get mad about, you know, oh, you know, you screwed up that one pre-order. Now, why are we going to trust you for this one? You don't have to ask other people who are in the know and get their opinion too. So hopefully that was a better way to handle it. Um, I wish it didn't take an hour of of outtakes to, to try to get this message out, but please let me know your thoughts on it. And if you have any questions like that, where it involves a situation, like a, a specific company or person or whatever, I would try to word the question more generally because I'm not out to get anybody. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Some people unfortunately, I mean, it's real life, right? Some people are intentionally out to steal your money, but most aren't. Most are actually decent people, and I don't want to talk badly about anybody. So uh, hopefully this was a good enough answer. 
So everything seems to have fallen into place with Whatnot, and I believe the first live stream is going to be this Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, so New York City time. And a bit of background for anybody who's unfamiliar with what I'm trying to do or Whatnot. Whatnot is a live streaming auction platform that I'm not sponsored by. There's no nobody's paying me to say any of this. But um, it's something that looks like what I've been wanting for a while and that you could hold up an item, talk about it, and then start bidding on it right there and set up one minute bid time, 30 second bid time, whatever else. So people actually know what they're getting. So it's pretty cool because you don't have to rely on guesses on either end. You could kind of talk and hang out and they're they're structuring it to be more of a community than just one stranger buying something off of another stranger, which I always love that aspect as well. So my goal for whatnot is to, first of all, start clearing out the boxes and boxes of stuff that I just bought to do a review on or to test, and then I will never use again. That stuff drives me crazy because somebody else out there would definitely use that thing. And for me, it's just taking up space. But I also want to test out the platform. I want to sell a bunch of very cheap, like one-off little $1 games or something just to kind of see how we all like it. But I know that might not be exciting for a lot of people, so I also wanted to give a couple of incentives. The first one is the main item that I will be selling this weekend is a GC Loader GameCube, including the Game Boy Player attachment, um, which is both purple to match. There's some discoloration on that, but I think that's something whoever buys it could easily get off. I'm not going to mess with it, though. I'll leave that up to you. But I'll have more details about this, but basically this is going to be uh, a PAL GameCube with a shielded RGB cable and a GC loader, and it has the digital port too, that'll be configured to be PAL and NTSC, so it's basically like a a global GameCube that you could do whatever you'd like with. So uh, I figure that's going to be a neat item that you don't see every day that you might be able to, or you might be interested in, but also anybody that signs up can use the coupon code. I'll put a link to it in the description and you get $10 off your first purchase. I'm sorry to beat this to death, but I am not sponsored by them. That is not, this is not some kind of personal thing they're giving me. All the new sellers are, they're offering this to at least this month, I think. So, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You're getting free 10 bucks off your first purchase. So uh, if you're interested in any of this, even if you just want to hang out, you don't have to use it on my streams. So, you know, sign up, get your $10 credit towards your first purchase, come hang out on Saturday. Let's check this place out together. And even if I don't have anything that you like for sale, you could use that 10 bucks towards something else. So hopefully that's uh, enough incentive to get everybody to hang out and see what we like. And if it goes well, I'll do at least one other one um, with some pretty awesome items in there that I think a lot of people would be interested in. And I'd like to continue to just do grab bags. Like, all right, it's, you know, first Saturday of the month. Let me open up a box and see what we got in here that I haven't seen in years that I may or may not need and kind of go from there. So uh, hopefully I will see all of you that can make it this Saturday. And if not, I'll probably do a quick follow-up thing about it on the podcast just to let everybody know how it went and if I'm going to be doing another one. So anyway, as always, thanks to everybody who participates in these. I always enjoy doing them, even when it takes me a while to get a take right on something. But I do appreciate it. Thank you all, especially, of course, who supports in any way possible. And hopefully I'll see you this Saturday.